Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, I look out and see several faces that I recognize, and, and many that I don't, but it, uh, it's been a longing in my heart to be with you. We've worshiped with you guys a few times when you were across town, but this is our first time to be with you here, and so we um, often pray for you in Martinsburg, and so I want to bring, bring greetings to you on behalf of uh, my family back in, uh, in Martinsburg, and uh, we pray for you often. Often hear reports from Pastor Josh and Pastor Chris, so brothers, thank you for putting that effort in, and we, we remember you often in our prayers and are always grateful for the reports that we get to hear about what God is doing through the saints here at Hagerstown Church. Um, I know that you guys have been kind of walking through the Gospel of Mark now for a little while, and it was, uh, it was a delight, really, to get an invitation to come and open His Word, God's Word, with you. We're going to be doing that this morning, and so we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. We will turn there in a couple of moments. And as I have been looking at this text and growing more familiar with it in preparation for this morning, you know, I just found by the Lord's providence it to be awfully interesting, meaning we don't serve a God who is a distant deity that directs things from afar, but he is near and present orchestrating our steps daily with us. And uh, as I'm able to come with you and open this text, it reminded me of all that we've sort of gone through in our relationships over the last several years, where Josh and Sarah and their family had come to Martinsburg from Tennessee in 2016 and planting this church in 2019, and then all that God has done in the meantime. And it's required a lot of, um, a lot of sacrifice. A lot of painful obedience, and um, both us that have sent and, and many of you that have gone. And um, I'm reminded of that a good bit in this text. And I'm also reminded of how often um, following Jesus requires some significant sacrifices of us. Uh, maybe you've heard questions like, are you sure that you should foster that baby? Are you, are you sure that you really want to sell what you've got, uproot your lives from that city and go to another to help be a part of what God is doing 20 miles north? Are you sure that you really want to um, give up the pleasures of the American lifestyle and go to the ends of the earth as a missionary? Uh, maybe you've heard these, these kinds of questions before. I know that I have, and uh, maybe you've asked them. Maybe you find yourself asking those kinds of questions right now, and if so, um, uh, they're welcomed. And I'm, I'm glad and grateful for folks that ask those kinds of questions because it allows us to engage in discussion. But if you don't ask them, then they're often left unanswered. Uh, assumptions are made. It can just be a very difficult and unhelpful thing. So those vocal ones are a gift to us, as, as difficult maybe as those conversations can be sometimes. Um, they're good questions to ask. And ultimately what we're getting after is, is Jesus really worth us making shifts in our lives in order to follow him? Can we maintain our uh, level of discipleship, our, um, our type of lifestyle, if you will, wherever we might be, and still honor him and love him? Well, maybe so, uh, maybe not. And as we look at today's text, we're um, forced to really ask these kinds of questions. It's a century-old question, really, that comes to mind today as we look at this text and um, as we resume our time in the book of Mark. Uh, the question is, well, how much is too much? How much is too much? Can we offer too much of ourselves for the sake of Christ? Too much of our time, our talent, our treasure, as we as Baptists like to say very often. <laughs> um, I know you guys have been in Mark. You took a break for a little while. You spent some time in Philippians, I think. Um, your core, core values, which are also our core values, and I um, have been blessed by those over the last couple of weeks, as I'm sure many of you have been. Uh, I listen regularly to uh, Pastor Josh and Pastor Chris as they bring the word, and it's, uh, it's been really enjoyable. 
as they've sort of reflected on these things that are so valuable to all of us. And, uh, and so in order for us to get back on, make sure we're on the same page, and I know um, Pastor Josh concluded Mark chapter 13 last week, and as we move into 14, I want to uh, sort of recap a bit just to make sure that we are all on the same page as we begin to crack open to this, this next chapter. First, we pull all the way back and we just look big picture, right? We're, we have a big picture focus, and uh, we want to think about the book itself, the Gospel of Mark. Um, it is uh, um, the first gospel written among four by a fella by the name of John Mark, and we simply know him as Mark. And he wrote it, but he wasn't actually an eyewitness. Uh, he wasn't even one of the 12 disciples. Uh, you probably know all of these things, but we're going to cover them nonetheless. Uh, this man, John Mark, spent lots of time with uh, a disciple by the name of Peter. And Peter is the one who is giving Mark all of his info. Most scholars believe, actually, that Mark had written this gospel many, many years after Jesus had died, had risen from the dead, and then ascended to heaven. And so it's in between this time of Jesus' life and Mark's writing about Jesus' life that, that a lot takes place. And during that time, uh, the church begins to explode in growth, um, both in width and in depth. And, and eventually the church would go on, as, as Jesus would promise, to face a lot of hardship and persecution because of their unrelenting faith in this man named Jesus. And in fact, there is this man, as we read in the, gospel, or in, in the book of Acts, rather, a man named Saul who is ravaging the early church and is, is personally overseeing the killing of saints in Jerusalem. And one of those examples would be found in in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, you may be familiar with that. And, and God would, by his gracious hand, go to save Saul. He would later begin to be known as Paul. And, and, and when Jesus changes Paul's life, everything changes for him. And, and if, if Jesus has changed your life, then you know that as well. There's not one element of our life when we follow Jesus that does not fall under the reign of Christ. Amen? That's right. And so Paul begins to feel that. And, and he is the author of the majority of the New Testament... And he would no longer stay in Jerusalem as a religious expert, but he would go on missionary journeys. And he would be planting churches in the surrounding regions, even sailing by boat into different countries. And when Jesus changed Paul's life, um, Paul never found himself asking how much is too much. And one of the churches that he plants was in the church at Rome. Now, arguably, one of his, his magnum opus or his most important writing was delivered to those Christians in Rome. And it is in this New Testament letter that we refer to as the book of Romans. And Paul was writing this letter uh, to those in Rome about 20 years after Jesus is on the earth. Now, he loves the Romans, and he wants to see them thrive as, as believers among a, a pagan society and thrive they did. If we just kind of look at um, Christianity throughout the Roman Empire early on, we, we find that they are succeeding often in, in the marketplace. They're, they're doing well in, in social spheres, and they're, they're doing well among fellow Romans. All of that would change, though, around A.D. 64. This is about 30 years after Jesus walks the earth, and this great fire sweeps through Rome. We refer to it as the Great Fire of Rome. And in about a, a week's time, two-thirds of the entire city is burned. Now, still to this day, uh, we don't really know where that came from or who caused it, but rumor began in Rome that the emperor at the time, Nero, he is the one responsible for ordering this fire because he wanted to clear land for his own personal palace. So he needed to find someone to put the blame on. He couldn't take it himself. So many scholars believe that uh, he would view Christians as the perfect target. So Nero turns his rage toward the believers of Jesus at that time, and life would never again be the same for those saints living in Rome. It was a great time of angst and fear 
and uncertainty for these believers. And it was at that time that the Holy Spirit would inspire Mark to write this gospel in order for these Roman Christians to be strengthened in the day that the Lord had brought upon them. You see, Nero, he is unleashing the Roman military to find, to torture, to capture, slaughter these beloved saints. Some would be thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, others dipped in tar and burned in um, Nero's backyard to serve as his own personal human torches. And these Romans, they would flee their homes, their jobs, life as they knew it, and they would hide in the catacombs, which is a, a tunnel system underneath of the city that was filled with filth and rats and rotting corpses. And maybe if we could put ourselves in their shoes for a moment, we would probably at times find them wondering, how much is too much? Maybe you felt that way as well. You see, but God will never leave his people alone. He will never leave them to suffer alone. And this most precious gospel, the gospel of Mark, would serve as a healing balm, a sweet reminder when things seemed unbearable for these dear saints. You see, we've read through the gospel of Mark now. You guys are very aware of it. One of the major themes is Jesus' authoritative power. That he has power over spirits, creation, sin, and death itself. Power over all things. We see that he sustains these suffering saints in the worst of times through this word. You see, the stories, the lessons infused into their hardship with suffering and reassuring them that the best really is yet to come. That life was hard, but they clung to the fact that they were not home yet. And this is the background for the Gospel of Mark. This is why it was so timely for them. But we know the, the, the Word of God is living and active. Not only is it timely for them, it's also timeless. It has things to say for us as well. So we, we press upon with our reality in, this, in our souls that this is a living book. This is not just a, hor- a historical depiction of suffering saints, but it reminds a timely word for followers of Jesus today. This is one of the main reasons, really, why one of our and your core values is the word matters here. Um, and I, I told you I appreciated that sermon that you had preached from 2 Timothy 3 a number of weeks ago. And the Bible's sweet stories, timeless lessons, and beautiful songs, precious prayers, they fill us by the Spirit of God with reminders in what we need for life and godliness. And so as we approach Mark 14, we should do so in awe of what we have in our hands. 1,500 years, 40 authors, three different languages over several continents, yet telling one grand story of God's redemption. It's a beautiful thing, what God has given us. And so at this point in the gospel, Jesus is in the town of Jerusalem. It is the economic and also the spiritual hub of Israel, uh, a country where a lot of the Bible is fixed, but really it's only the size of the state of New Jersey. And um, we are now at this point within a week of Jesus' death. As we look in Mark 14, we begin what's often referred to as the Passion Week. And Jesus knows that he is soon to face the wrath of God. And with each passing moment, he realizes that there is precious moments that are ticking by. And he knows that his life would not just serve those around him then, but it would go on to serve all time or people of all time and space, those of us today. The heat is beginning to turn up on him more and more. And as as he goes, he is laser-focused. Isaiah says he sets his face like a flint toward his purpose and his mission. And and we already know where that is. We've we've been to Mark 10.45. At the Son of Man, Jesus has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so all 33 years of his perfectly sinless life was preparing him for this week. Or the spotless Son of God who would die in the place of wretched, sin- wretched sinners like us would come. And, and Jesus would never be found asking, how much is too much? 
Instead, he, God the Son, according to Philippians chapter 2, would take on human flesh, emptying himself, although in the form of God would empty himself and take on the form of man, and he would make a way for us to be satisfied for all of eternity. Your heart is just like mine. It's thirsty. We're always longing for something. But unless we are truly quenched by the living waters of Christ, we'll continue on in our thirst. And the good news of the gospel paves a way for us to know God in true, lasting, eternal satisfaction. And Jesus comes and he paves the way as, as he willingly suffers on the cross where my sin and your sin are placed upon his grieving soul. Where his father would turn his back on his beloved son and, and Jesus would be buried in a tomb and his followers would go into mourning. But we know how the story finishes. Three days later, Jesus would rise from the dead and accomplish the greatest feat of history. And in his rising from the dead, he offers to us, undeserving people, the free gift of salvation for all of those who would turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ alone for salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. And when we see, when we see how gracious God has been to us, we should never find ourselves asking how much is too much. We follow Jesus, the one who has given it all. But we are forgetful, aren't we? I'm forgetful. And if you're like me, you also are forgetful. Just as Mark's original audience was forgetful, which is why Mark decides to include this narrative, Mark 14, 1 to 11, in this gospel. But if we could just think for a moment. Mark is from a, he's off in a distant place thinking of these grieving saints, and he's wondering, what accounts and narratives of Jesus' life and ministry should I include for these dear saints? They're suffering, and they need, they need a boost of encouragement, a reminder of the healing balm of Christ's work on their behalf. What must I include? Think about for a moment how difficult this would have been for Mark. Um, another gospel writer, John, he highlights the impossibility of this feat. John chapter 21, he says this, now there are also um, many things that Jesus did and were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Just feel the, the tension and the weight of Mark's role here writing to these saints. Now thankfully Mark was not the one deciding as you remember from that sermon, the word matters here. It would be the Holy Spirit who knew what these Roman Christians needed most. And so he would, the Spirit of God, personally handpick and inspire the writing of Mark. It is stunning and humbling to think that God would be so intimately acquainted with our grief that he would provide a personalized, well-timed help. And so we find ourselves in Mark chapter 14. Before this chapter, right, is that really long chapter of 13 that gets a little weird, it seems, on the, on the front end. The surface can be a little, a little concerning. Like, what is it that Mark is actually writing about? And Jesus there is essentially saying, things are about to get rough. And they're going to be rough for a while. And when they get rough, don't quit. Pastor Josh said it this way. Stay awake. Stay watchful. Stay faithful. We could summarize, really, the teaching of Mark 13, that faithfulness is not foretelling the future, but it is obedience in the present. It's not foretelling the future, but it's staying obedient in the present. And Jesus is doing just that. He is forewarning them of what's to come so that they may stay faithful. And as we move into chapter 14, this passion narrative begins in the section of Scripture, shows us the fruit of our response to the chapter that's come before it. It's the fruit, really, that we're going to be looking at today. Um, as Mark often does, he begins to compare two people. There is this unnamed woman, and then we have a fella, one of Jesus' closest companions, actually, the, Judas, uh, the disciple named Judas. And it is as if Mark is holding up the lives of these two for all of us like a mirror. 
It's like a mirror. He's holding up this unnamed woman, and he's holding up Judas, and he's saying, which one reflects you? You see, the fruit of our response will be evident, and there are are two options, really. You will either, I will either follow in the footsteps of this woman and bless Jesus with your best, or we will stand in Judas' shoes and eventually betray Jesus for our own profit. That's what we find in Mark 14, 1 to 11. And uh, the first couple of verses there allude to some festivals going on, which are really important for us to know what they actually mean. Uh, We pick up historically in uh, in a significant event that was referred to as Passover, You've heard of the the phrase Passover, I'm sure. It was a major annual feast where Jews from all over the world would flock to Jerusalem for this week-long festival. And and the population, according to scholars and historians, tell us that the population of Jerusalem would triple or quadruple in size and emotions would be high. And this feast, it was to serve as a reminder for the Jews of what God had done thousands of years before when he brought them out from underneath the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, which was Egypt's ruler. If you write down in your Bible, Exodus chapter 12, that's where you can see the scene of the Passover. And God had, God had, um, had filled Pharaoh's heart with hardness, and he was going to do away with this oppression once and for all and show his power and force over Pharaoh. The Lord was going to pass through the land of Egypt and strike dead every firstborn. Uh, every Jewish family was to take an unblemished lamb and sacrifice it. And the blood of the lamb, as you may know, was to be spread across the exterior doorframe or the outside. And as the Lord would come by, when he saw the blood, he would pass over that family and spare them from his wrath that they deserved. And whoever was not covered by the blood would face the terrifying wrath of God. It's the scene of Mark 14. And the timing of Jesus' death is a very deliberate one, as he is coming to show that he is the better Passover lamb. Jesus is the spotless lamb of God that was slaughtered by God. Not only is Jesus the lamb of God, but he's also the son of God. So this tells us that God truly fulfilled the Passover in the death of his firstborn son, Jesus, the lamb and the son. And now, All who turn from their sin and place their faith in him alone will be passed over. And so we get the benefits of son and daughter while Jesus took the curse that we deserved. And those that remember this, this truth of the Passover, stay obedient as Jesus calls them to in Mark 13. But those who forget get pulled away and distracted. Said another way, those that remember this bless Jesus with their best, but those that don't betray Jesus for their profit. So, with the lengthy introduction out of the way, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. I've heard you guys have some really swanky Bibles in the pews, so I grabbed one. So, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those. I feel like uh, Pastor Chris in his sermon plugged it probably 15 times a couple weeks ago. (laughs) And I was like, I can't wait to get my hands on one of these. They're very nice. All right. Mark chapter 14. You guys have that? We're in verse 1. It's also up on the screen. Thank you, brothers in the back, for serving us in that way. This is the word of God, and it says this. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he being Jesus, he was reclining at a table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now there were some who said to themselves indignantly, they were angry, 
Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, one of the disciples, one of those closest to Jesus, he went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. And as we look at it, we find that this woman comes into the room where everybody is eating, and she does the unthinkable. You see, really, the only reason why this woman ought to be in this room was to serve, for that was the common place for a woman in Jewish culture. Instead, though, of suffering under the social obligations of the Jewish people, she breaks from the mold in order to bless her Lord. And as the scene unfolds, we find the table in an uproar. This woman has gotten a little too radical for them, right? Follow Jesus, woman, but stay in your lane. That's the tone of their response. And while they were at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, Jesus, this woman comes in and it has a flask, an alabaster, an ointment of pure nard. It says it's very costly. She comes in and says that she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, meaning they're very angry, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. What has this woman done? She essentially has realized what she had on earth was soon to pass and she didn't want to waste it. And ironically enough, that's exactly what those around the table actually accuse her of. But what what is more of a waste? Holding on to the family heirloom just to pass it down to your children or to offer it up in the present for the glory of God? And she knew the grace of God. She remembered her own sin. She recalled what blessing had already flowed from Jesus. And she knew that she was to stay obedient in the present. And she remembered these things, and as she did, she gave her best. But what about us? Beloved, what about you? Is your reaction to offer up what's convenient, whether it be in your time and your money, the skills you possess, just what's convenient, or from a heart of gratitude like this woman, do you bless Jesus with your best? A question for us to ponder. How do we know that she actually gave her best, though? Maybe this was just something she had sitting in the closet that she wasn't really sure what to do with, and, you know, Jesus in town, I'd clean it out, and I'd kind of give it to him. How do we know that it really was the best that she had to offer? These are kinds of questions that we should be asking of the text when we read it. There are details in her for a reason. Our God does not waste space, he doesn't waste time, and he doesn't waste words. Well, in Jewish culture, women were excluded from careers that paid very much, so These jokers around the table fake a love for the poor, and they bemoan the fact that uh, 300 denarii worth of ointment was poured over Jesus' head, and it could have been sold and given to those in need. There's virtually no way for a woman of this culture to make this much money. 300 denarii was how much someone would make in a year. This was worth a year's worth of wages. 
She, she would have never had enough to buy a costly ointment like this. Verse 3 says, very costly. And it doesn't just speak, this, this phrase very costly, doesn't just speak to its high value, but it's extreme rarity. And Mark makes mention that this ointment was of, of pure nard. Nard, it's not something that you're going to find really at Walmart probably. It, it is a, an aromatic amber-colored, here's the buzzword, essential oil. Uh-huh. I know some of y'all that left Martinsburg get down with the essential oils. Uh, anyways, it was this uh, aromatic amber-colored essential oil, and it uh, derived from a flowering plant in the honeysuckle family that would only grow in the Himalayas. This is a mountain range that spans across Nepal, China, and India. So this was not a, a trip that Jews were making on a regular basis. It wasn't like, a, hey, will you just go to Walmart and get us some nard? This didn't happen. And how she got her hands on that, we really don't know. She probably inherited it. And not only was the ointment very costly in monetary value, but it was very likely her heart's prized possession. It was the best that she had to offer. And she didn't just pop the top and share some of it with Jesus. She gave it all. Verse 3 says she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. She smashed, she smashed the jar. It would never be able to be used again. She poured it all out. What did she do? She blessed Jesus with her best. And Jesus says in verse 8, she has done what she could. And he uses the same language. If you remember the poor woman at the temple in Mark chapter 12. Do you remember her? The poor old lady, and she comes to the temple with two of the smallest coins in circulation. This woman gives something very costly, a year's worth of value. And he, he equates her, compares her to the woman who come in Mark chapter 12 with two coins that pretty much meant nothing in economy. You see, Jesus is not sweating the size of the gift. He already owns it all. Rather, he's after the value of the sacrifice. I love the connection one commentator makes when he holds this woman's valuable sacrifice, 300 denarii, against the old widow's copper coin, and he says this, How vastly different that woman's gift from this woman's, yet from Jesus they receive the same commendation. This makes me uh, think of a dear brother at my church. A man advanced in years and he's out of a job, minimal income, strapped with a property that he struggled to sell. Every week, though, he's faithful to walk up to our giving box. It's in our sanctuary, and he puts his best in there. I don't know what that is. I don't need to know. But based on what he's told me about his financial position, it probably isn't much. But do you know what the Bible would teach us? That his gift for the kingdom honors God more than the millionaire who just signs off a $5,000 check every quarter conveniently. That's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. I would caution you, though, to not let this woman's sacrifice just be a stirring story. You see, it should sink deeply and expose the areas of our lives where we tend to hold back. We all are prone to sin, prone to wonder. So you should ask, am I willing to bless Jesus with my best? Not to earn His best, beloved, because by grace through faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, you already have. We don't give out of guilt. We give out of grace. And so all of this commotion is going on in the background. The loud crash of the broken vessel. The sound of the oil hitting the floor. The complaining comrades. Another supposed follower slips out of the back. Verse 10. 
Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, the chief priests, they were glad and they promised to give Judas money. And then he sought an opportunity to betray, to betray Jesus. Now, if you would be so bold, we just want to encourage you internally to hold up the mirror. We look at this woman and we ask, do I bless Jesus with my best? Or do we look in the other mirror and see more of ourselves than we want to admit? Am I more like this man, Judas? Am I headed on his path? This is a man that had close proximity to the Savior for three years. Jesus has loved this man. He has served this man. The Son of God knelt down and washed this man's feet. He's provided impossible meals on the hillside. He's cast out demons. He's calmed storms. And Judas has been there to see most of it probably. And instead of giving his best, he takes. He betrays. He forgets. So let me plead with you, Christian. Don't take the path of Judas and betray Jesus for your own profit. You see, on our own, every single one of us, this is where we will land every single time. Because sin is magnetic. And we, in our flesh, we are always pulled in sin's direction. We want what we want, and when we fix our eyes on that which we want long enough, it becomes our singular focus. You see, Jesus or Judas rather betrayed Jesus for his own profit, which we know from uh, Matthew 26, 15, if you wanted to just write that in the margin of your Bible, you would see that what Judas got out of betraying Jesus was 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. It's like four months' wages for a laborer, about $7,500 in modern terms. And what did it get him? Grief, heartache, more emptiness, dissatisfaction for sure, and eventual death because he would go on to hang himself. But this woman, what did it get her? Joy, meaning, purpose. You see, none of us are doing exactly what Judas did. But maybe we're not far from it. And this is what it means to consider the teaching of God's Word and not just allow it to be informational. We don't come on Sundays to hear the Word of God given for information, but transformation is the Spirit of God applies it to our hearts. We should ask ourselves, here the Spirit of God is holding this mirror up in front of us. Do I look more like this unnamed woman who has blessed Jesus with her best, or do I look more like Judas? Am I inclined to betray Jesus for my own profit? Would you ask yourself this if you'd be so bold? Really simple categories I've mentioned earlier. Time, talent, treasure. The reason why we often refer to this way is because, generally speaking, these categories make up the majority of our lives and our possessions. We all have time we can give or keep. Every single one of us, we have a skill set, a gift. You may not believe it, but it's true. God has given us talents so that we could use for others, be a blessing to others. And we all have money to use. I'm not sure how much, and quite frankly, it doesn't matter. But we all have time, we have talent, we have treasure. And so I want to ask you to lead yourself to kind of think through a couple of questions. How might we betray Jesus for our profit with our time? Some ways to see that reflected. I failed to wake up this morning and spend time with the Lord in prayer and reading because I played video games too long. I watched the game too late. Uh, I betrayed precious time with Jesus so I can 
spend time however I want. You see, Sunday mornings is a great reflection of that, really. Um, Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. And your Monday morning devotion will be a Sunday night decision. How are you doing with your time, beloved? Are you betraying Jesus for your own profit, for your own time? I could uh, ask a few more questions, though. How might we betray Jesus for our profit with our talent? Not sure. Possible scenarios. I'm really good with kids, but I just don't want to serve in Hubtown Kids. I've had enough of them. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But if I was sitting in your chair, I'd probably be one of the ones to raise my hand. Or maybe I work on cars all week, so I really don't want to serve that single mom who has a car that you can hear from a mile away. I'm just tired of doing it. What, what gifts, talents, abilities has God given you that you sort of hoard and hold on to your, for, for yourself instead of using it to bless God's people and advance his kingdom? How might we betray Jesus for our profit with our treasure? Now, I'm not intending to get really crazy with this, but we all know. I want this new fill-in-the-blank. So I'm going to skip out on giving to the church sacrificially this week, this month, or this quarter. I mean, you know what? I haven't even given in years. Still my church, though. I know I should budget, but I just don't want to. Now look, this is what a modern-day Judas could look like, seeking to satisfy our own desires at the expense of Jesus, the one we claim who has authority over us in every area. And so I wonder, you know, if you're, if you're feeling stirred in some way, it is the grace of God. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that it is God's loving kindness that leads us to repentance. And when we feel conviction as we look at the word of God, we trust that it comes from the spirit of God. But it is important that as we consider this and we hold these mirrors up, am I more like this woman? Am I more like Judas? Man, I'm more like Judas than I realized. What do we do with that? We have to respond to conviction the right way. It doesn't move us to, to do better. It moves us to repentance. We go to the cross where we never find Jesus asking how much is too much. We remember what he's done on our behalf. We want to respond in obedience from grace to please him. See, there's a song that you're probably familiar with. One of the lines says, uh, What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. Just consider that. Philippians 2 says that Jesus himself humbled himself. Didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself taking on human flesh. He never, he never asked how much is too much. And it isn't as if God the Father is, is Father in heaven and he's looking at his son saying, will you go down there and just clean that mess up? No. Jesus willingly goes for the joy that was set before him. To make himself known to you. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. And when we are convicted of sin, we go back to the gospel. And we remember the grace that our Lord has given us. Have you considered Christ who has emptied himself? Beloved, forsake the question, how much is too much? And if you want to follow Jesus, then we go all in. So the main idea that I would present to you is this, that our sacrifices leave a lasting legacy. This unnamed woman 
has left a legacy. Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, so too will our testimony. And guess what? That's fleshed out right now in our very own midst. Judas, too, has left a legacy. Every sacrifice we make leaves a lasting legacy. You know, at our church back in Martinsburg, I'm preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. And there is a word that's often used in the Hebrew, hevel. It, it is uh, sort of like vapor in a sense. We go outside here in a moment and we'll breathe our cold uh, breath into the hot air and we'll, it'll float in the air and we try to get our hands around it and it's gone just like that. You and I have one life to live. You're going to leave a legacy. You're making sacrifices now. But to what end? Is it for your sake or is it for Christ's sake? So I want to close just by getting very practical. Um, Brett is going to come and begin to prepare to lead us in song. And as he does, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to Psalm 139. If you've got a Bible, please open it up. Psalm 139. This has become a practice of mine every single morning. And I want to invite you to consider something like it for yourself. So maybe you're here and you're wondering, okay, how do I really know, you know if I'm more like this unnamed woman or if, I, um, if I'm more like Judas? How, how do I know? Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24. If you'd be so bold to pray this, the Spirit of God will search you and reveal these things to you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. What a terrifying prayer. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Listen, as the Spirit of God searches our hearts, He will do so in those really scary crevices that we don't want anybody to see. But He's kind, and our Savior is lowly and gentle. And leads you to repentance through His loving kindness. You'll see Philippians 1.6 to play out in true. That he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. So, beloved, if you're more like Judas today, uh, it's not where God will leave you. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. So, would you daily, on your knees before the Lord, pray this passage Lord, search me and know me. Try my thoughts. Reveal those grievous things within my own heart that I'm afraid to see myself. And lead me on the way of everlasting. Psalm 119 says, Turn your eyes from worthless things and give me life in your name. May that be the case. May Hagerstown Church be marked by that. Let me pray for us. We'll sing. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Just as Pastor Josh had prayed earlier, Lord, we echo that same refrain. Oh God, would we grow in our holiness? From, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, we see that you are claiming a people, setting them apart, setting them upon a path for your namesake according to your way. And we get to be a part of that. And Lord, I remember the painful sorrow of sending these people to be here. And there are folks that have come to faith that have been encouraged, that have been discipled, shepherded, matured. All because, Christ, you humbled yourself. You took on our flesh. 
you moved into the neighborhood. And so I pray for these saints, dear God, that you would continue to grow them more into the image of Christ. That is your will for them according to Romans 8. That they would trust more and more that you began a good work in them. They didn't start it. They will not sustain it. They will finish it. You do that. And so may we walk in obedience joyfully. May we reflect this unnamed woman. Would we bless you with our best, knowing that you first gave yours. So Lord, we invite you to search us, to know us, to set us on a path of everlasting. For your namesake, for the joy of the nations, for our good. It's in Christ's name. Amen.